so we need to pray. Lord, we just thank you that your spirit leads us into truth and that there's such an abundance in your word. And so we open our hearts to you and say, Lord, would you speak to me today? Lord, not just to my friend or my spouse or my somebody that I think needs, not just to Johan, <laughs> but will you speak to me? Would you pour your anointing on Tommy as he preaches? Uh, and that we expect you to do what only you can do. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Awesome. So it was probably a few months back that um, Russ and I started the conversation around um, what it would look like to put together uh, an apologetics course as a church, just as a tool so that we could become better equipped in that arena um, and better be able to handle the different responses and different arguments that um, our culture and our society and our world are throwing our way. So that, that's what started this conversation, and we're still putting that together, and we're looking at running that um, in February next year, and it's probably going to look like something like six weeks, and each week we tackle a different um, common question or argument, and we look at really practical ways that we can dissect that and respond to that using um, logic and evidence-based arguments um, and historical-based arguments. So that started the conversation. Then Russ asked me, well, what would it look like to do the first session of that in the church context for Redemption Hills? Um, and left that with me, so I went away to think about that, and I came back to him with this idea that I think that really the starting point has to be the gospel, because ultimately the gospel itself is the foundation for all evangelism. Our job as Christians is to introduce people to Jesus, which is ultimately to introduce them to the message of the gospel. And that doesn't discount the purpose of apologetics and evidence-based arguments for our faith because you know, as you start to learn and understand and research the different historical and evidence-based arguments for Christianity, you actually become overwhelmed with how much there actually is. And they still have their purpose, but I would argue that their purpose is more in pulling down people's walls and barriers that they build up that stops them being receptive to the message of the gospel. So if we're able to be equipped in that arena, then we're able to pull some of those walls down, making them more receptive, but ultimately we still have to present the gospel because that's where the power is. Um, we see that in Romans 1 where Paul, he says that the gospel is the power for salvation. I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ for it's the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes. He makes it very clear where the power is. And I think that the danger can be that sometimes we can shift our focus and think that we can do a better job. And we think we know better. Oh, I know why this person doesn't believe in God. It's because of this side issue. And we can get caught up or maybe even distracted in those side issues. And they're not, um, we don't want to discount them. They're still important. But we've got to remember they're not the core issue. The core issue of someone needing to understand their need for Jesus. And that comes through a presentation of the gospel. So that's where I want to start here this afternoon. I want to look at the gospel, and it's going to be a simple message because the gospel at its core is simple, but that doesn't mean that we can um, think that we know it and then just move on. We need to continually be reminded of the gospel, and that's really what I want to do this afternoon is remind us of the gospel. Now, it literally does mean good news, and that's probably not a huge revelation to us. We probably know gospel means good news. But the thing I want to note there is for news to be good, 
It has to invade a bad space. That's, in essence, what makes news good. A real simple example of that is if you're a uni student waiting for your exam results back, and they come back and you got really good results. That is excellent news because you were probably a bit worried about that. And the more worried you were and the worse results you thought you were going to get, the better the news is that you actually passed, (laughs) right? Or even if you're just um, sitting in a a doctor's um, appointment room and you're a bit nervous because you're waiting for some test results back, and then you get the results that it's all clear. That is really good news because of the potential for bad. And the worse potential for bad that there is, the better the news is. And I fear that potentially sometimes we miss the magnificence of the gospel because we're focusing too much on the good news. And we're skipping, maybe, the significance of the bad news and the broken context in which it came into. And the good news, focusing on the positive and the the good side of things, it's an important thing to do. We want to be focusing on those sides of things, what God is doing in the here and now, But at the same time, it's so important that we're focusing or taking moments to reflect on the corrupt nature of each of our hearts and the sinfulness of each of our hearts and how that's where the gospel found us. Because it's in those moments that we actually see the gospel amplified. Because the uh, the more we understand the darkness and the broken context, the brighter the light of the gospel seems to be. So that's where I want to start here. I want to start in Genesis chapter 3, which is really the introduction of the darkness. It's the introduction of sin into the world. And it's the story of the fall. So if we start in verse 1, is what it says. It says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of the tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said... You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was delight to the eyes, and that the tree was also uh, desired to be making one wise, She took of its fruit and ate it, and also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. So here we have the introduction of sin into the world. It's the first moment where Adam and Eve chose to step outside of the parameters in which God created them to live. And I think that a lot of people will look on to this story and just think, what's the big deal? It was just such a small act of disobedience. Why does it have to get made into this big idea of sin? But the reality is that this small act of of disobedience began what was really a, a downward spiral of humanity. We're in the next chapter of Genesis. We're then introduced to murder, where Cain kills his brother Abel. And then the following chapters, it just gets worse and worse and worse. And we see this sin taking hold of the human heart, causing corruption. Right up until verse 5 of chapter 6 of Genesis, where it says this, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. 
that verse then leads into the story of the flood where God ultimately wiped out almost all of humanity. And I think that that verse, it captures the seriousness of the situation, doesn't it? It captures the seriousness of sin and the corruption that it caused in the human heart. And it's important to capture that and it's important to feel the weight of that. And I would also argue it's important to help others feel the weight of that. Because that is the key reason that most of our world don't trust in Jesus. It's because they don't understand that. It's because they don't see their need for a saviour. And I can say that really quite confidently because that's what the Bible tells us in Romans chapter 1. If we just jump there, this is where I want to spend a bit of time. So in Romans chapter 1, if we just jump down, this actually comes just after that verse we read before where Paul is saying, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel because I know it's the power of salvation. Just a couple of verses after that, this is what he says. He says, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth, or by their sin they suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they do not honor him as God and give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up to the lusts of their hearts, to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator. So what we have here in this Scripture, in essence, we have a description of the kingdom of the world. We have a description of what our society is currently living in. A society that has chosen to worship creation over the creator and who has suppressed the truth of their own sin, so they're actually content in that as well. Another example that might help us wrap our heads around what this looks like. Um, I read a book about a year ago now by an Australian theologian and historian by the name of John Dixon. It was called A Doubter's Guide to the Bible. And in this book, he tells this story of his family when, they were, um, when his son was younger. And they went to the beach. And his son was about 11 or 12 at the time and was out swimming in the ocean. And he got caught in a rip. And the lifeguard picked up on this really quickly and swam out to help his son get back to shore. But what was interesting was that when this lifeguard went to help his son, rather than his son being receptive to this help and thankful to this help, he rejected it. It was like, I'm fine, I'm fine, I'm fine. I don't need your help, I'm fine. Even when the lifeguard managed to fight past that and get him back to the beach, his son wasn't thankful to this lifeguard for having literally saved his life, but it was still, I was fine, I didn't need your help. 
And the reason for that was because he didn't know what a rip was. He didn't know the danger he was in or what it was pulling him towards. So naturally, he didn't think he needed any help because he was fine. That's the reality our world lives in. And yet, it becomes too easy for us to think that we can skip that part and jump straight to the good stuff. And if we do that, what we actually do is we end up presenting a gospel that's just confusing. Because the message of Jesus and his sacrifice on the cross to bring reconciliation between us and our creator makes no sense if someone doesn't recognize their own sin and their need of a savior. Or it can actually lead us to presenting a gospel that's even misleading. Because if all of that side of things doesn't make sense, and the sacrifice of Jesus and the sin, and we're not going to go there, then what we can do is we can start presenting a gospel that's focused around the things that God will bring into your life, not what he has already done. And we start to say, well, God will bring hope and peace and healing and breakthrough and transformation. And that becomes the centerpiece for how we preach the gospel. And I just want to say that it's amazing because God does do those things, but that's not the gospel. The gospel is what he has already done for us. And the reality is that if God never did anything else for us, what he has already done would demand a, a surrender from us already because it has already been enough. So that's what needs to be the focus when we preach the gospel. As Paul said, that is where the power is for salvation. Yes, God still works in our lives, and that's amazing. But that's not how we present the gospel. It needs to be centered around the sacrifice and the death of Jesus and the reconciliation that we find in that, the hope and redemption that we find in that. And that's, that's a hard thing to, to present to this world. I'm not going to lie, that's, that's a daunting thing to try and present to this world. Like, How do you help someone see their own sin? Where do we even think to begin with tackling that? And I think that part of the reason why it's so difficult is because there's a lie that this world is selling us. And I think this is a lie that is also creeping into the church if we're not careful. And it's the lie that we are intrinsically good. That there is good inside of us. And this is a truth of the world. It is not a truth of the Bible. Because the world will say to us, yes, you make mistakes, but overall you're still a good person. I'm good, you're good, we're good people. It's like the good we do outweighs the bad that we do. And then what we do is we look at other people in our lives and we think, they're a mess. And then we use that to then just amplify our own goodness. And what we're doing in all of this is we're taking goodness and we're defining it differently to how God defines goodness. And we see this exact thing play out in the story of the rich young ruler in Mark chapter 10. This is what it says. It says, and he being, um, nope, sorry, in the wrong place. Um, and as he was setting out on his journey, he being Jesus, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Now, initially, you can look at that and think, that's a strange response because Jesus was firstly seems to be avoiding the question. This man asked, how do I inherit eternal life? And Jesus just gets caught up in the title that this man gave him. 
And then secondly, it's almost like Jesus is denying his own divinity because he is God, so why is he not good? But what we see as we read on, this man says, I've kept all the commandments since I was young. And he actually thought that he could earn his good favor with God by what he'd done. He had this perception that it was about the things that he did. And Jesus, he picked up on this straight away and said, no, no one is good except God. Your definition of good and God's are completely different. And we have to come to this understanding, and we have to really help other people come to this understanding that's a hard one to swallow, that when we're looking at how God defines goodness, and as the creator of the universe, he gets to define goodness, that we will never be good enough for God. We won't. That's the truth of it. That is the bad news. That's the reality of sin. And we have to come to terms with that. And that's going to be very tricky for our world to come to terms with because our world is defining, redefining what a person's best and highest interests are to be built around the idea of what's in here. So while the Bible says, don't look for answers in here because there's nothing good, the world says, you're empowered to be you. Follow the desires of your heart. That's what's most important. And that worldview is not the worldview of the gospel. And we need to understand that difference now more than ever. I would argue it's actually completely opposite to the worldview of the gospel. Because the worldview of the gospel says something very different. It says in Jeremiah 17, verse 9, that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? And that's what our world wants us to rely on. Or in 1 John 2.16, For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes, the pride of life, is not from the Father, but is of the world. Or in Romans 3, verse 11, None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Scripture becomes very clear that the inner self is actually corrupt. The inner self is deceitful, it's unreliable, it's full of sin. And it's for that very fact that that's what we actually need to be redeemed and saved from. And that's why Scripture teaches something very different. It says, don't look for good in yourself because you're not going to find it there. Look outside of yourself for good. Look to Jesus for what is good, what is true, and then shape your life into that. Pursue that with everything that you are. That is the message of the gospel. That's the worldview of the gospel, and it's very different from the worldview that our world wants to sell us. We've got to come to terms with the fact that we're the issue. The corruption, it's not just something that exists out there in the world, it's something that exists in here in each of our hearts. And in Ezekiel, we see that put really plainly. In chapter 18, verse 20, it says, The one who sins is the one who will die. Because the penalty for, death, uh, for sin is death. And when we come to understand the weight of our own sin and this reality, then it makes sense to come to terms with the fact that what we're truly deserving of is actually an eternity separated from God. What we're truly deserving of is death. 
That is the bad news. And that is uncomfortable to spend time in. And that is difficult to come to terms with, and even more difficult to help other people come to terms with. But that's the reality of the kingdom of the world. And I think that we can just be so thankful that we don't have to stop there, though. But that's only just the first part. But we can move into the good news. And we read of that. I think that Ephesians chapter 2, it's one of my favorite passages because it captures this transition from the bad to the good so well. Ephesians chapter 2, this is what it says, starting in verse 1. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived, in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. We were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. This is a description again, isn't it, of the kingdom of the world, of the kingdom of darkness. And this is the reality without Jesus. Verse 4, But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, And this is not your own doing, but it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We see a pretty massive shift take place here because we see a comparison between the kingdom of the world and God's kingdom. And we see that shift of death to now being made alive. And we actually see a reversal of the verse we read before in Romans that says no one is righteous, no one does good, to now this state of actually being created for good works. And that's not because the works that we do are suddenly better than they were before, but that's because God now sees those things through Jesus. The difference here is now that we stand under the sanctification of Jesus, that his death on the cross, paying the penalty for our sins, that God now sees us through Jesus' perfection. And we start to see that all of this, the entire gospel, it's ultimately pointing back to God and his glory, isn't it? His goodness, His grace, His love for us. It has absolutely nothing to do with us, but absolutely everything to do with Him. And we're reminded of this again and again through this scripture in Ephesians. It's by grace you have been saved. It says it again and again. It's through Christ. And it even makes it absolutely clear. It says it's not anything that you've done, but it's simply God's love. Because what we were deserving of when we understand the bad news and we understand our sin and we actually come to terms with that, we were deserving of death. We were deserving of an eternity without God. And the only thing 
that stopped that reality unfolding and taking place was that God's love for us was greater. That he loved us too much to want to leave us there. And that's why we see the message of the gospel unfold. But it's a message that only makes sense when we first understand the bad news. When we start to evangelize and speak our faith into people's lives, we need to remember that ultimately, if we skip that side of things, we're going to be presenting a gospel that is really hard to understand why they need Jesus. Because Jesus came to save us from our sin. And to understand that, you first have to understand your sin. Not just understand what sin means or what it is, but you have to understand your own sin and your own need for a savior. Because as we see in Romans 1, that's the real reason why people don't follow Jesus. These other issues in their lives that we might put the focus on, like, oh, maybe it's this idea of suffering. And I, I can't reconcile a God of love, who, a God who would allow suffering in this world. You see, that might be a barrier in their lives that an apologetical argument might help weaken. But their true underlying need is still to recognize their need for a savior, to recognize their need for Jesus. And when they do that, that's when the power of the gospel takes place and salvation takes place. That's the foundation for our faith, and that should also be, therefore, the foundation for how we share our faith. So next year, when we take a look at this apologetics course and we workshop what that's going to look like, that's also going to be the foundation for how we approach apologetics. Yes, we're going to look at the historical arguments and the evidence-based arguments, and I really enjoy getting into that side of things, but we're not going to discount that through every single conversation, ultimately, we're trying to create an opportunity to share the gospel and to allow the power of the gospel to bring about transfer, uh, transformation and ultimately salvation in someone's life. So for now, um, let's just pray that God would give us clarity of mind, um, but also the courage, I would argue, to stand firm in this truth when we're given the opportunities to share our faith. God, we thank you for the gospel. God, we thank you for Jesus. And despite how undeserving and unworthy we were, you still gave us that gift. And through that, we find redemption. Through that, we find a right relationship with you. And God, that truth, would you give us courage to be uncompromising in that truth? And equally, would you give us opportunities to be able to share that truth and to speak that truth into the lives of our family, our friends, and those that we do life alongside? But just take a moment, because maybe, maybe you're here and maybe you've never actually truly grasped what the gospel is or what the gospel means. And maybe you have, maybe you've been a Christian for a long time, but equally, let's just take a moment to just sit in the wonder and marvel at the wonder and the beauty of the gift of Jesus.
if you've never actually accepted Jesus, you've never actually started a relationship with him, maybe now is the moment where you're starting to see why you need Jesus. If that's the case right now, is an opportunity for you to do that. To speak right to him now directly. To thank him for the gift that he gave. To choose to put your trust in him. It's as simple as that. God, in all of this, we, we acknowledge that you deserve the glory. And right now, God, we give you the glory. We acknowledge that it's nothing to do with us, but the gospel is everything to do with you, your goodness, your kindness, and your love towards us. And we thank you immensely for that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.